Father's Day is coming, and this year, you're prepared. Because this year, you know exactly what you need to get them. And that's a personalized song from Songfinch. Songfinch is a gifting company that brings stories, feelings, and memories to life through one-of-a-kind songs. With personalized songs starting at $99 and delivered within seven days, their community of professional songwriters, 300-plus musicians and growing, will handcraft the best gift you can give. This is a radio-quality song that they will make just for you. All you have to do is give them the memories, moments, and experiences. Select the mood, pick the style or genre, and they will take it from there. You can use this for so many different occasions. Weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, Valentine's Day, newborns, or perhaps to celebrate the five-year anniversary of your podcast. And Songfinch did just that. They created a song for us. It was so easy. The web interface was actually fun to go through. And in seven days, they came back with an amazing song. They make it so easy for you. If there's any areas they have questions on, they'll come back again to make sure that it sounds right. And not only that, your song lives on in a personal URL called your story homepage where you can listen and download, read the lyrics, learn about your songwriter, and share your song with others. Best of all, Songfinch is giving our listeners $20 off your personalized song from scratch. Just visit songfinch.com and use promo code CLATCHERS for $20 off. That's songfinch.com, promo code CLATCHERS. This is a test, one we've done countless times. What are you testing for? Fidelity. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Do you know where you are? You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Westworld episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring ourselves back online to review episode six, Phase Space. Written by Carly Ray and directed by Tariq Saleh. IMDb is giving this a 9 and Rotten Tomatoes a 100%. Okay, Rotten Tomatoes, we love you. But how is every episode 100% with these this guys? It feels a little off this season, right? Maybe we're going too quickly. We record the next day. Maybe all the votes aren't in yet at Rotten Tomatoes. I've been checking back later and IMDb does go down over time, but Rotten Tomatoes is staying kind of consistent. So I don't know if I'm going to use that as a great bench point. I will agree that I enjoyed this episode. I feel like I'm often in line with IMDb. The critics said, face space shocks with a surprising character return and a gratifying answer to one of Westworld's biggest riddles, leading us to further gripping questions. So I think there's a lot to break down here. I'm a little nervous about podcasting on it. Up until this point in the season, we've been getting storylines kind of split off from each other. We'll be able to look at the host's perspective with Maeve and Dolores in one episode and then what's behind the scenes, the tech aspects, what's happening with Bernard in the other episodes. This time, they were all jammed in together. It felt a little befuddled, a little tricky to follow. I'm nervous that more casual watchers may have gotten a little lost in the weeds from this one. I know for us, it was really exciting to get some of those big answers I'm especially happy that some of our theories, or should I say, Jason, your theories have paid off in such a big way this time. No, no. There was a couple of your theories as well that's starting to pay off too. Oh, yeah. But I have to give you a huge ding for the Ford lives in the system theory. Mm -hmm. 
He's alive in the cradle. You were so right about that. I thought he was going to come back in human host form. Maybe he still will. Yeah, that's a new question that we have. And we have a few questions surrounding that, but we'll get to that in a second. What was really exciting for me in this episode was I was watching my theory unfold. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And then more, though, more stuff than we had even anticipated. I do feel like they tried to make it seem bigger than it was in some cases, as though there were hundreds of reveals that we didn't expect when really it was kind of a couple. And I'm hoping that by breaking this down, that makes it more dissectable for you. What did we actually learn? What's fact now? What is new? So let's just say at the top that there were two big issues raised that we need to go through, that Ford has been somewhat in control this entire time, living within the system, Thus, it's plausible, as we had speculated, that the free will of the host is not so free, that they're perhaps not as conscious as we thought, or at least that's being manipulated on some level. There's definitely more going on there with Bernard and how he's being brought to his own awakening. There seems to be a veneer of freedom, but at the same time, it felt very narrative, like there was control of where people are going and the decisions they're making. It was an orchestrated rebellion. Exactly. With this show... I view it differently from Game of Thrones, The Magicians, all the other shows that we do. And excuse this lame analogy, but I often feel like we're watching a magician on stage and he's showing us what he wants us to see. But in the background, there's other things going on. Even as far as the New Age magicians, where halfway through, they'll show you how they did it, but that's disguised as another trick. Mm -hmm. So even when Westworld shows their hand and goes, I only hid that ball. By doing this, all of a sudden that ball's even bigger. And then they make a face and everyone claps like, oh my goodness, he tricked us again. Yeah, so this is the reveal, but there's still so much more happening behind Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan's back that we haven't seen yet. And maybe some of the theories that we got to and that a lot of other fans got to, let's be fair, it wasn't just us. We were able to pull ourselves away from the bright flashing lights happening there and say, okay, something more is happening behind the scenes. What is that? The other part of that, though, that I kind of missed, you brought this to my attention. A couple of people had started getting into this theory last week a little heavy, and we'll talk about it more later. But the idea that not everything that we're seeing on screen, specifically with Bernard, is happening during the time frame it appears to be. Okay, that was no surprise. Bernard's time frames are all over the place. But it's not even happening IRL, if you want to say that, in front of us. Bernard's brain is being run through simulations in the cradle. This entire time. And that's what we're seeing when certain things are happening with him. This made so much sense when one of our clatchers brought this to our attention. At AW Same gave us a link to a YouTube channel called Hacks Dogma. And it's titled, Is Bernard in a Simulator? And it's a 10-minute video breaking down pretty much the first episode and all the scenes we see with Bernard. And we still don't know specifically if it's entirely true, but it makes too much sense to ignore. And they've pretty much told us within this episode, at least parts of that are correct. The extent of it, for how long, we're not really sure yet. But The Verge and a couple of other articles brought up a good way that we can realize when that's happening on screen, a visual cue, if you will. The aspect ratio of the screen itself. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, when you're watching the show, it should be full screen, meaning the entire screen of what you're looking at on your TV is image. So that's everything that's happening while we're watching, no matter what timeline that's in. 
But the scenes where we're being run through the cradle in a simulation, they show them as widescreen, meaning you see a black bar at the top and bottom of your screen sandwiching the picture. But this is something new to this episode. They didn't do that with the beginning of the season or all of Bernard's scenes. So it's a little different. And they, again, could be just showing us the rabbit being pulled out of the hat, but they're not showing us the second rabbit that's about to come out. Yeah, it does seem, though, for right now, as a way where we can separate that out. So towards the end of this episode, the scenes where Bernard is in the cradle, we see him hooked up to that machine, so we know it's happening inside the simulation. He's going through Sweetwater. He comes into the saloon. That's in widescreen. That also lets us know the scenes early on in the episode where Bernard's talking to Dolores and we find out a fidelity test is being run. Same thing, same widescreen format. So that's kind of a trick we didn't see coming, that Dolores is running him through this stuff in the simulation as well. Well, while we're talking about it, let's break this down. One, a little bit of background on that YouTube theory, just so the Clatchers and ourselves are on the same starting ground. In this theory, he wakes up on the beach. He doesn't know it, but he's in the cradle already. Mm. And he's being questioned by everybody. Hex Dogma gives a lot of good examples. I won't go through all of them. But basically, the way they're reacting to him, if they don't know he's a robot, they don't really seem to care how he's feeling. They start asking him questions right away. The shots with the lineup of hosts being shot and killed. The host, every time he looks over, one that was just killed is alive again. Then the next shot, two of them are dead. Then the next shot, one. So There's inconsistencies. Exactly. And then every time something happens, instead of looking at what's happening, they're all staring at Bernard, almost as studying how Bernard is reacting to this, always followed up by a question. It goes deeper than that. Definitely check out that video. But with that knowledge, now that we know that he is at the end of this episode, in the cradle, he put himself in, and Elsie is reading it, before we even go to Ford, which is amazing, let's go with what we know. Well, with the widescreen stance, we know that the opening shot in this episode, he's talking to Dolores. Yes. And it seems like the same clip that we've been seeing throughout season two and even season one at times. Where we thought original Arnold was running host Dolores through tests to see how conscious she was becoming or not. Now we find out that's not true. During seemingly most of those scenes, Dolores was interrogating host Bernard for fidelity. We had kind of surmised a while ago that Ford was probably on to how to do this human host transfer of consciousness a little bit better than Delos had yet, that he was probably looking into this tech that he'd probably got further along than them. And if that was the case, the likeliest candidate for that was Bernard. So at some point, they gave him the pearl, they tried to upload the consciousness of Arnold into him, and they have Dolores running him through these fidelity tests within the cradle, within a simulator, to try to see if he will get to that point. At this point, that's how it seems. Right. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, is that really Dolores? Because if they're in a simulator, it could be anybody. And we've already seen Ford in RL. Most likely it's Ford just talking through the guise of Dolores. Yeah, why not? Ford knows that Arnold had an affinity towards Dolores. Mm -hmm. So who better to coach Arnold through becoming woke or... A real boy. Yeah, becoming a real boy (laughs) than Dolores. So that's one way we could go. That sometime after Ford speaks to Bernard brings him to this room 
or he actually changes him, puts the other marble in, mm-hmm. pearl, excuse me, <laughs> and starts coaching him. Yeah. The other route we could go is based on the knowledge that we know Dolores is now coming into the cradle. She slammed the front of the train into the cradle. We saw Elsie shake mm-hmm. and everything. Maybe she came up. We just haven't seen it yet. Took Elsie, put herself in, and is now manipulating the system. And is in the system with Ford. So the only thing we have based off of that is the timing of when Dolores gets there. But we don't know how or when or why yet. Right. It's still the timeline thing that they're using to confuse us, which thing happened first. Did Bernard really fully get the marble transferred yet and has a human consciousness? Or are they just running simulations through the cradle to see if it will work? So we don't know how far along we are with any of these things. But we do know the big idea of what they're trying to tell us, right? At least we've gotten that point. So I'm sorry if this is still confusing. We're going to keep breaking it down as we go through the episode, but we wanted to give you the big points up front because I know that's what everybody is thinking coming out of this episode, wondering what are we seeing with that and what does that mean for our next steps? And we know for a fact at this point that yes, Ford was in the system. Ford has been using their mesh network to go in, change the narrative if I guess it goes starts to wane a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mess with the man in black, which we'll get back to. And he is the almighty powerful right now, which leads us to the other question we've been having, which we still don't have an answer to. Does Ford want to come back as a host or is Mm. this his... End game. Yeah. Yes, because as I said afterwards, it seems as though he intentionally put himself into the cradle so that he could accomplish these things, could take this new narrative to the next level and bring the host to that stage. But was his end game to stay in there, to stay in the system and live on or to eventually terminate himself? Or did he always have the goal in mind of coming back into some type of host body and having his own pearl put in so that he can return in a semi-human form? So this is all interesting and we're still playing catch up on the technology. The cradle is something we didn't know a lot about until very recently. Delos themselves thought it was just simulation technology that was storing all of the host data running through the narratives to make sure they're working properly. It was never supposed to be able to influence other systems. And yet that's exactly what Ford is using it for, to tap into the mesh network, to talk to hosts, to influence the entire park. So we're still learning about all of that. And I think that's going to dictate where things go in the future. So I'm going to try to simplify the cradle a little bit. In my job, when we're creating a new website or a new payment system or something very important that has to be working 100% before it goes out to the clients. We have what we call a sandbox. Even video games do this. This sandbox has the same properties as what's currently live or is going to go live. But anything you do there, you could destroy it and you can just start all over because it doesn't have any real-world ramifications. So you can try new code. You can say, let's try this new narrative with, instead of Maeve, let's put this other host as the mother. Let's see what happens there. Let's try Maeve as the madam. Okay, it didn't work, but I see something there. Let's change her apperception levels and see if it works this time. Essentially, it's a testing ground, but has all the same data. Then once you're really happy, you can copy it, put it into the real world. So again, just try to visualize this. It's the same system, but in its own sandbox. It's It's a closed box world, yeah. And if you look at the way they even write out Cradle, they write it CR4-DL. CR4 is a control register. That's a process register that changes or controls the general behavior of a CPU or another device. It does things like 
switch the address mode, interrupt control. And then we get reference within the episode that the cradle itself shouldn't be able to affect other discrete systems. I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. A discrete system is a system with a countable number of states. There's a finite amount of things that it can do that happen within it. And so you can look at it in precise mathematical models. You can kind of analyze, think about a narrative, right? We put it in here. Sure, it could go one of five ways, and that could lead to one of 50 different results, but that's it. We can look at every single result it could possibly come to and see what's going to happen. This is as opposed to continuous systems or things that can affect each other. So they were very surprised to find out the cradle can impact other discrete systems out there. It was never meant to happen that way. Now we know, we knew all along that Ford created this technology. There has to be more going on there. He has a way to get in there and mess with that. And even Elsie is looking at it saying, it's like something's alive in there and making improvisations and changing things. That all relates back to our title as well, phase space, which we did discuss last time in math and physics. A phase space is a dynamic system where all possible states of the system are represented, just like we were saying. It may contain a great number of dimensions, and this diagram shows everything within the system the way that it could be. So that's all really interesting. That's the tech aspect of things. There's also a lot of character development, progression in story arcs. We had everything going on with Maeve and her daughter. That set against the man in black with his daughter, Emily. In an interview with the writer, Carly Rae, she says that the emotional ties between hosts seem to be stronger and clearer and less conflicted than the ones between humans. So she meant to draw that analogy between Maeve and her daughter and the man in black. And of course, we have Dolores and what's going on with her journey, her revolution. About her, Ray says she wants to embrace her own awakening, but she's still willing to treat the other hosts around her as a means to an end. And that was further stressed in what we see going on with her and Teddy this time. For a music note, I believe we just got one, Bleeding Me by Metallica. And that takes us to new faces and places. For faces, we met Coughlin, played by Timothy V. Murphy. He's the head of the Delos Retrieval Team, or Delta Team, as he refers to it. So presumably, this is the team that Charlotte was trying to get in the beginning of this season. And they were saying, we're not coming until you have Peter Abernathy. Yeah, this is the rescue squad, so to speak. This guy's even harder. He thinks Stubbs is a joke. That's hilarious. You're basically in charge of running an amusement park here, buddy. I do... The real work, when the shit starts to hit the fan. Yeah, but he makes Carl Strand look like a kindergarten teacher. Yeah, where was Carl Strand this whole time? Well, I don't want to go too far down this route, but at this point, do we even know he's real? Mm. Is he just part of that? all of that in the cradle. Yeah. Huh. And I was thinking it was bizarre the way they came in on those parachutes and what was happening seemed a little strange. There's also the questioning of if Elsie has been there this entire time. Mm. If those scenes with Bernard are happening in the cradle, there was some weird things we brought up finding her in the cave, even though she's been there for quite a while, looking fresh, seeming okay. Just protein bars. <laughs> she kind of gets over the thing with Bernard knocking her out really easy, and now they're off to find the answers. So, ah, it would make a little sense if that's not really happening, and it's just Bernard looking for that friendly face as he's going through the simulation, and he pulls Elsie. And this excellent theory comes to us in a tweet from at Casual74. He says, hey guys, I noticed something as I watched Westworld the second time around. 
With subtitles on at the parts where Elsie and Bernard are talking, it keeps saying Hale. Error? Or do you think Hale is using Bernard somehow in his head? So I didn't even notice this and we watch in subtitles. Great catch at Casual74. Instead of marking it as Elsie under the screen, they're marking it as Hale. So this could be Hale standing there with Bernard hooked up to the machine, asking him questions, and Bernard's mind within the simulation is interpreting it as Elsie. That's brilliant. Very brilliant. And that's what I mean by you think they're showing you the trick, but they have another trick behind that that hand. Uh, thank you for that because I now totally subscribe to it. Jason, when you showed me the theory earlier on this week about everything taking place in the cradle, I was kind of intrigued, but there was still so much missing. And I said, well, where's the proof? And what you, does this mean? Let's be honest. You poo-pooed it and I felt dumb for a second. I, because <laughs> they weren't fully there yet and they right. didn't have anything to back it up. And I hate... Theories that that come out of left field and they just start saying, well, what about this and what about that? These are things we can actually point to. I don't think HBO made a mistake in subtitling a major character. No, I I don't think so either. I haven't seen that. We're going purely off of one of our Clatcher's word. Yes, that's true. But I believe them. Why would, yeah, why would they make that up? That makes a ton of sense. Thank you so much for sending that in. Please keep stuff like that coming. Back to new faces and places for locations. We got Snow Lake we had heard about last time. This is the birthplace cornerstone of Sakura. And along those lines, Jason, we saw last season that you could go to discoverwestworld.com and look at the map of the entirety of Westworld where the characters were at. As soon as they started pulling up Discover Shogun World, they have the same map. Eerily similar, which has brought up a lot of theorizing for the actual layout of this island quote-unquote, and what that means. But they are showing two characters being tracked on the Shogun world map. Hirafuku, who is more north in Shogun, and Jinmaku, who is more south. Those are character names we have not gotten yet. I'm not sure why we're seeing them, but I'm figuring that's going to become relevant eventually, and we're going to continue to have a place with seeing Shogun world, despite the fact that Maeve and company do leave it during this episode. All right. I'm sorry that was heavy at the top. We are going to jump into the plot now. We've broken it up into four main regions. We're going to talk about Dolores first, then the stuff happening with Maeve, then the man in black, and finally we'll wind up at the Mesa. So we mentioned how we get this opening scene of Bernard sitting across from Dolores. He tells her, you frighten me sometimes, Dolores, not of who you are now, but you're growing, learning so quickly. I'm frightened of what you might become, what path you might take. I think I have a choice to make, something I've been wrestling with, a choice between the unknown and, well, an end. If you outgrow this place, outgrow us, what would become of you? I'm not sure if it's my choice to make. No. He didn't say that. He said, I'm not sure what choice to make. He didn't question whether or not he had agency, whether or not he had the right to end me or himself, but whether he should. I don't understand, Dolores. Is is this some kind of improvisation? Freeze all motor functions. It's not as though he grappled with his agency. Is it my choice? Do I have the right to end the hosts or end myself? It was just whether or not he should. 
So she is running him through this fidelity test. She's picking up on the fact he's not responding the same. But why do you think he switches to saying, is this even my choice to make? It's although he's dealing with a greater moral question as he's seeing them coming to awakening or consciousness or as he is envisioning himself within a sort of host state of being, he's seeing them as more human and saying, is this even my choice to make, to decide what happens to them, or are they their own entity now that deserve a chance to? I don't think it's just a matter of fidelity here, is what I'm saying. I think it's Bernard really starting to grapple with that in a bigger way. And I love that possibility. So let's ask the Clatchers, what do you think about this? Do you think he's just off script here, the way we see James Delos having gone through and Dolores is trying to bring him on track? Well, this is what Arnold would have said. Or do you think he's moving through his own progression of how he views the hosts and what should be done with them actually much the same way Arnold was? So I feel like that's very true. You can answer Christina by emailing us contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. And one note, we got all your emails last week. Oh, yes. We read every single one. We haven't had time to write back to you. And that's because we have been kicking ass this weekend on delivering our Patreon members with our bonus podcast and our movie review. Today, we just released the movie review, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. So Patreon Clashers, it's there. Enjoy. We had so much fun. It's lengthy. There's a lot to listen to. A lot to learn, too. And we also recorded our bonus. We just have one segment left that we wanted to record. So that's going to come out in a couple of days. If you guys feel like you're being left out, don't. You can join it. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com. Click on Patreon and join the crew. Pick your tier. Each tier gets you exclusive access, whether that's to community chat boards, these amazing discussions we have surrounding all of our shows, a bonus podcast each month where we talk about fun facts, what else we're watching, what's happening in the news, or as in this month, the future for our body, some of the fun ties to the topics of Westworld. Or the final tier, which is monthly movie review casts. Typically, we will pick a movie that's in the theaters right now, but sometimes we do fun throwbacks. We always have a poll that we put up for Patreon Clatchers, and you decide what we'll review that month. So if you like what you're hearing and you want to help us out, and you want some more content from us, that's the best way to do it. Join the crew. Jason, you just failed to actually apologize. So, so back to the original. <laughs> I am sorry. This is my fault. I am the email response person. I'm normally a lot better with getting back to people. I do promise I've read all of them and we'll bring up a lot of this within the podcast itself. Some of them are hard to respond to quickly. The reason being is your response isn't like, yeah, good idea. That's great. <laughs> you actually give a well thought out response, which takes time. Yeah. I want to really think about it and see how I feel and then get back to you to start that conversation. That's why I have Twitter duties, so I can spell wrong yeah, and just say, so great job, we'll talk memes. about it. <laughs> memes help me so much. But thank you to everybody that has written in and continues to participate. We really appreciate it. Back to Dolores. In somewhat present tense, Teddy is walking through the empty streets of Sweetwater. He reaches past the can this time to an empty bullet shell that he pockets. Dolores plays the piano inside the saloon. Teddy comes in and tells her the day's wasting and they should get going. She seems eager to see his new character. I don't know how you interpreted that, but she kind of looks expectantly at him and smiles at what she's getting initially. This is what she wanted. She says to him, how many times do you think you stepped off that train? 1,000, 10,000? It's where you started every time they killed you, which to me kind of denotes an emotional Mm. reasoning behind what she did. We wondered if it was just her fierce 
dedication to the cause or if she wanted Teddy to survive and thought this was the only way to get him there. She doesn't want him killed yet another time. And he kind of sees that. He responds, the man who rode that train was built weak and born to fail. You fixed him. Now forget about it. But after that sentence, she looks at him very unsure. Well, I think she realizes, oh, that's not my Teddy now. You never know what you have till it's gone, (laughs) I guess, right? It's what she needs, but not what she wants. Mm -hmm. And I think she's realizing that. The beginning of this scene, it's something to note. She's the one playing piano. And that's one of the many reasons that led me down those two roads that we brought up earlier this podcast. If that was Ford speaking to Bernard in the cradle disguised as Dolores, for one of the many reasons is the fact that they showed that same shot of her playing the piano that they show at the end of Ford playing the piano. Yes. And we've kind of wondered a lot about that throughout Dolores's journey and her interplay with Wyatt, which was a Ford decision. The things that she's doing in order to further the host revolution that do seem so forward. And so I do think a lot of these times he's acting through her or there's a part of that guidance happening within the network as she takes the next steps. Which also could could explain us saying this is so uncharacteristic of her. We really don't like this character now. It would explain a lot. We always thought there had to be more going on there. It's not as though the writers are unaware of the effect that's going to have on people that... Dolores was one of our most beloved characters in season one, and now everybody's angry with her. What's going on with this woman that's just out there running amok? Surely there's a point to why they are scripting her character that way this season. We just weren't entirely sure what that was, if she was totally still running on a narrative, or if it was orchestrated for her to come to an awakening and this is part of it. I don't know if Ford being the magician behind the scenes and pulling the strings on everything is just going to be the ultimate endgame. I think there's a lot more to it than that. I hope it's not. I think it's a lot more interesting if he allowed some specific host to be more free than others. Mm -hmm. To run those fidelity tests within the park and become awake for real and then arm them to make their way in the world because that was always the biggest problem and that's something him and Arnold really struggled with. If we do allow them to come to that place of evolution they're coming to, then what? Mm. There's no place for them out there. You can't keep them safe in here if they're awake and now you're running the story on them. That's even worse. So what do you do? And it seems as though Ford did have a bigger plan for what would come next. I don't know where in the hell that goes once they leave the park, but that is definitely exciting for the future of Westworld. Okay, Christina, I just thought of something. It it is not in line with what we had planned for the podcast, so I'm going to throw us off a little bit. But with us talking and discussing our theories, I have another one that really comes out of left field. Please don't write back saying I'm an idiot. I haven't really fleshed this out, but sit on this for a second. Okay. We're learning now that a lot of what we've been watching may be simulated. Mm -hmm. And as we were fleshing it out, I was starting to think, hmm, what if there is no technology to create hosts that have this much ability? What if it's all a simulation? Within the cradle. What if that flashback scene with Logan when he said... We're not there yet. And they and he said, I thought I was going to be give, shown something. And they said, you're already in it. They said, you're already in it, meaning you're already in the simulation, strapped in, so and this is what you're experiencing. Does Westworld even exist? Or is it all a matrix where you go virtually to have this experience? Exactly. I wonder. And, and that's is this- why the layout and the island and everything doesn't totally make sense. And the map of each world... Is like a computer game. Looks like layers 
the same circular map where if they were next to each other on a physical island, that wouldn't kind of add up. But yeah, if it's a computer game. So again, I have no backing for this. It's just something to think about. It's kind of fun. But let's take it one step further, Chris. So why is everything going to shit? Well, is it all just for the man in black? Is this all the game Mm -hmm. for him? This big narrative that they're showing for, let's face it, the head pretty much Mm -hmm. of the entire company. And they're putting him through this. He was bored. He had enough. He was going through the steps. He was, you know. And that's why his daughter says, you're constantly disappearing. You're obsessed with this thing that's very childlike, a childlike fantasy. Mm. You spend hours and days plugged into this vert net, experiencing this Westworld game instead of paying attention to your family. If that's true, Jason, and I have kind of considered the possibility that there's something Matrix-like or virtual reality like happening with Westworld because they take such pains not to show us how this fits into the real world. And if things make sense within time frames, geography, now that could just be because we're going there in future seasons and we're not allowed to know yet what happens in the larger world. Or it could be because something like this is true. If that's true, I do think they have designs on an AI. I do think it's advanced. I do think it exists in the real world. And they possibly are even getting to the point of considering human host transfer of consciousness, but they are running into this fidelity problem, this accepting reality problem, and thus they have to keep running the simulations through the cradle until they get to a point where that works so that they don't have to be off in real life with a James Delos 500 times costing them money every time to get to a point where he can accept reality. So I do think this would be a test then for that. Maybe. I mean, now we're going a theory off of a theory that has absolutely no backing towards it. So we're like, here's a theory. I'm pulling it out of my ass just off of what we're saying. And then your theory is like, okay, but why? Okay, here's my theory why that theory would be. Well, because that would tie in stuff we've been given in the show. True. As a way to make sense of what you said. But at the same time, they're making money, making this a vacation spot for anyone. You can kill anybody. There's no remorse. And the ads that they were talking about is because it's a computer simulation. They are learning what these people are doing. Just like they learn on Facebook what we click on, what we're interested in, and they can sell to us. They do this with testing video games all the time. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, sorry about that, guys. Okay. (laughs) We're going to get back on track for a little bit, I promise. We're just going to finish out here with Dolores because after she speaks with Teddy and the Mariposa, outside the men are readying the train. Angela questions the hostages for information about where Charlotte took Peter, but they aren't sure. They say just somewhere in the Mesa. He could be anywhere. She didn't tell me anything. After all, she's the boss. She could take him places we don't even have access to. But Teddy's not happy with that answer. He shoots one of them, completely unconcerned, and they board the train for the Mesa. Yet again, Dolores gives him another look of, oh boy, have I (laughs) created a monster? And then they pull this thing with Phil that I'm really surprised about. They're on the train. Teddy hands Phil a gun with one bullet left before moving on to the next car and they disconnect the last train car he's on and let it go. Well, the one bullet was his mercy. You can kill yourself before it crashes. The reason being, I don't know. Why do you dump a whole train car? Why not just leave him? Oh, well, they had to break in. In Sweetwater. Throw him off the train, shoot him. Like, what was the point of that? That I don't know. I really don't. Um, but yeah, that's where they're going. We know to break into the Mesa, whether that's to get into the cradle, to get out into the real world. We're not sure what Dolores's next aim is. 
just destroy everything. Yeah. And again, let's reflect on our top theory, not the weird one I just said. Mm -hmm. But we have the two ways it could go. It's Dolores' Ford or that's really Dolores now in the Mesa Mm -hmm. because she's going there. Let's go forward the two weeks. We heard that the Mesa is destroyed. It was set on fire. That's Dolores going there. Whatever she does, whatever happens after, she sets the place on fire. Right? That's what we're believing? Yeah, I'm assuming with the train crash, she does some kind of damage. But that definitely doesn't flow with the theory we have now that Bernard has been in the cradle this whole time, and they're just walking him through the steps. If it was set on fire... How would they be able to still access that? Yeah. I mean, for sure, the timelines aren't piecing together to make everything work yet. It could just be that she crashes the entrance to get in, damages some stuff purposefully. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't really mess yet with the main systems, the cradle itself, because she has things she's after, or she doesn't care. She doesn't care and she just wants out, and this is the way to get out. Um, I could see it going either way. I think we will learn about that soon, so I don't want to get too far afield until we get more information. All right, let's move on to Maeve and what's happening in Shogun World. (laughs) Luckily, a little bit more straightforward, as is usual with Maeve. We open up with heavy breathing that overlays a shot of the carnage inside of Shogun World. Akane says, breathing in, breathing out, moving forward, moving back, living, dying, coming, going. Like two arrows meeting in flight in the midst of nothingness, there is a road that leads to my true home. Maeve watches as Akane closes Sakura's eyes and remembers stroking her own daughter's face. There's a lot of visual imagery here, and I'm not 100% sure what they were trying to capture. You have the two women, both with blood on their face, going through this very intense moment. It seems Akane is trying to ritualize the death of Sakura to bring meaning to it. Yes, I think that's exactly what's happening. Emotionally, it settles you if you feel like you've done something in response to it. You feel more in control of it by doing things like this. But it's a very almost violent, different ritual that she performs. I didn't recognize it. I did a little bit of research. I don't think it comes from any kind of Japanese culture. So far as I know, I didn't see anything about cutting out a heart. There are a lot of older cultures that believed that the body was cursed afterwards and something brought death down upon it. And so the physical flesh was impure. And in fact, they would leave the bodies out for birds and other things to pick the bones clean. And then they would bury the bones themselves. Hmm. That's also one of the thoughts behind cremation. And cremation did become common here. In fact, it wasn't until the Edo period that Buddhism took hold as the dominant religion among people in Japan. And there was the creation of a family grave. The practice of visiting it became commonplace. Cremation itself became commonplace. Up until that point, though, things were done a little differently. And even after, burial practices differed considerably by hierarchical class. And we talked about how that was a major factor in this culture. So for someone like the Shogun, it would be very different. There would be a small stone pagoda-like structure that stood at the center of a stone platform ringed by a stone fence. And the Shogun would be buried underground in a double casket. Just as a side note, in looking this up, I found there is a Musashi Imperial Graveyard in Tokyo. Oh. So that's kind of cool. Looking up things for heart burial, though, I couldn't tie that in. There are some instances of what's called a heart burial where the heart is interred apart from the body. They are both buried, but separately. It was an ancient practice whose special reverence was shown towards the heart 
due to its early association with the soul, affection, courage, it was considered the conscious of a man. That's where it lived in the heart. And of course, you have things like Mayan culture, which used human sacrifice to appease the gods. And that involved cutting the person's heart out, but while they were alive. And then the blood would be smeared onto the image of God. Other cultures would eat the heart after death in order to ensure the life, soul, and courage of the person passed into them. And finally, as the heart was considered the seed of life, removing it would ensure that the person could not be reanimated. And I think that really gets to the heart of, mm-hmm. pun intended, what Akane is trying to do here to finalize this death for Sakura. She doesn't want her to be able to be brought back. She suffered enough. This is an end to it. Let's remove the heart, cremate it, and formalize this ritual so she can finally be at peace in the one place she loved the most at Snow Lake. And so we get to see Snow Lake a little later on, but we get a scene in between. Maeve walks through the village doors with her team and orders two soldiers to kill themselves with her mind. Captain Tanaka still holds Armistice, Hector, Musashi. When Maeve tries to strike a deal with Tanaka, he refuses. He wants to keep Akane. So Maeve begins to speak to him in his mind, Mm -hmm. presumably to talk him into it. Musashi interrupts. Did he know what she was doing? You asked that while we were watching it. I didn't think that. In his mind, he was about to take out Maeve. And instead, he stopped it by saying, why don't you duel me? You've been saying you're better than me forever. And whenever you got the chance, you wouldn't do anything about it. Why don't you show your men that you aren't a coward and fight me now? I think he was saving her in his mind. I don't think he knew. Okay. I like that take. I also had considered the possibility he gave Maeve a look when she was doing it as though he kind of understood what was going on. And and I wondered to myself... As much as he hates this man, according to script, Tanaka, he used to work with him and he has some level of respect for him and believes he should have a more honorable death. To fight him at least gives some purpose to that. I don't know. It comes back to this question of how awake are the other hosts. And for some reason, it does seem like Musashi has come to his own sort of understanding, whatever level that be. But Akane pleads for Maeve to help Musashi with her magic Maeve says, we each deserve to choose our fate, even if that fate is death. So the crowd watches as they fight. Tanaka gets an edge by throwing sand in Musashi's eyes. Dirty. (laughs) But Musashi manages to steal Tanaka's second sword, showing us the famous two-sword fighting that the historical figure, Miyamoto Musashi, was known for. We had mentioned in a previous episode, we assumed this is where Lee modeled this character off of. And Musashi was a famous Japanese swordsman, philosopher, writer, ronin. He became renowned for his unique double-bladed swordsmanship, an undefeated record in 61 duels. Uh, A lot of people saying, what was the point of having this scene? I don't know if there was a point other than samurai fighting is cool. It looked awesome. (laughs) Uh, Musashi ends this by cutting off Tanaka's hand, defeating him, and then beheading him. What's important is what Maeve said to Tanaka. We each deserve to choose our own fate, because that comes back later on in the episode. As far as the whole Shogun world, I think I'm missing something. (laughs) I know that a big part of it is to reiterate how important Maeve's child is to her, because they're showing us parallels with what's going on with Tanaka and Akane. But besides that, well, and them also gaining another warrior, another kick-ass warrior. Yeah, just one, though. Far less than we thought Maeve would come to from this whole experience. And also fanfare. We got to see another world, which is cool. But I what else? I think primarily fanfare. I brought up the same question when we went to Shogun World. It's amazing. It's beautiful. This is very cool. And it's 
kind of interesting to see their doppelbots, but how does it fit into the overall story? Do they just want to do something cool by showing us samurai fighting in Japanese Edo culture? Or is this another example of how unwoke they are? Well, that's true. And I had worried that with Maeve encountering Akane, everything she was going through was so similar that it gave me kind of a sinking feeling in my heart. Her love for her daughter is no different and she's not truly waking up. This is still kind of a script that other characters in other parks actually go through very similarly. I'll stand by, we get a couple things here or there that make me believe Maeve is different. But the way these scenes are going to end with her, man, I felt like we took 10 steps back. Are you speaking in regards when she finally sees her child? Gets to the homestead. Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt like she was maybe getting somewhere with the Shogun World experience. And then we go back to Westworld and I don't know what happened there. We can dissect that more in a minute. This scene, though, I thought ended with an interesting note from Akane who said, hurry, you must find your child before this darkness eats us all. It was almost a bigger reference to how bleak the robot revolution is becoming. You need to find something that's pure, a purpose that means something. As we said last time, what sets her apart from Dolores' journey? Because otherwise, we're all just going to get lost in this. Hosts, humans, the darkness is going to eat us up. And I like that it does feel that sets Maeve back on the track she was headed towards. Here's where the group walks through the bamboo forest until they come to Snow Lake, the beautiful town on the lake with the mountain in the background. Lee shows Felix and Sylvester to their way out, a bell stand that is littered with host body parts. He opens a door to reveal a chute, and Felix takes it down to where the empty bodies let out in an underground storage area. Meanwhile, Akane brings Sakura's heart and places it in a kind of shrine where they light it on fire. Lee motions to Maeve to follow, but Musashi says he and Akane won't be coming. Musashi says no man is safe who refuses to defend his own land. And Akane, of course, repeats the choose-your-own-fate line, insisting she belongs here. I really like what Musashi's about. Even if this is on a script, what are we fighting for if not to defend that which is ours? It's kind of what I was saying about Teddy last time. Do they need to go out and overtake the world of humans? Or should they stay and say, this is our land, but we're not running these scripts anymore. You get out. (laughs) If this is real... And it's a real park in the real world. And it's not just all a simulation or VR technology. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see all the hosts band together to insist they're taking this world back for themselves. They deserve a place to be and to live without people using them for entertainment anymore. I think that would be a fun ultimate goal. But I'm sure that Ford knew there was no way that could last. I had a lot of respect for Akane. Very strong-willed. She definitely isn't woke. But she isn't following the same script. This is not in their script, Mm -hmm. I don't believe. I don't know what her goal is at this point, what they're going to do. I'm hoping it swings back and comes back into the narrative and gives us meaning to this whole thing. But also, I believe, and I might just be pulling at straws here, but what Maeve has gone through in this Shogun experience is going to help mold the person she's going to be afterwards, Mm -hmm. after we get over this hump with her child. Yeah, well, I couldn't help but thinking later, I completely understand the love she has for her daughter. Not only is it in her narrative to care for her, but even after all of the changes, she still wants to go back to her. Will she come to realize later, though, just as important, if not more, are the relationships she's forming naturally along the way? Is this more woke? Is this more real? The relationships she's formed 
with people like Sakura, Akane, even Lee, Felix, and Sylvester, because of the things they've gone through together, building trust, in some cases caring for each other, in the end, is that what's going to be something that means something to her? Well, I think Lee has really molded into this group. Mm. I think he is with Maeve. Yeah, that's why that last scene makes me so angry in so many ways. I I felt that way throughout these scenes. Is he starting to even like her, maybe romantically? If not, at least respect her, admire her? Yeah, until the last scene. And then, yeah, oh, God, all right, so let's get to it. The group leaves, plus Hanario. Maven team come out of the tunnels in Westworld through a graveyard. Lee navigated correctly this time, for which Maeve thanks him in a heartfelt way. Maeve tells Hector to wait there for her. Feels like she's gotten a little dismissive of Hector, that he's just kind of trotting along like her. Uh, it just feels that way. I don't believe it's. I don't believe that's the case. I think okay. uh, it's just... Do you think she still cares for him, or is she realizing yes. that that maybe wasn't a real thing? Um... I think she still cares for him. I think, you know, this is something she's got to go through, and he is there for support at this point. Okay. Well, she says this is her home, and she needs to bring her daughter back herself. Big red flag, dumb mistake number one. Why? Why, with all of these people she brought to help her, and knowing what happens at the homestead, is she going to go into that alone? I think she wanted to have a one-to-one with her daughter, but something she wasn't thinking about that we've been saying forever now There's got to be another mother there. That's my theory. Give me the ding. Yes. (laughs) I'm not getting many, so I have to own the one that did did come true. Yeah, I mean, we said, obviously, if this girl is still in rotation, and furthermore, if she's still on the ranch, there's got to be a new mother there. They're programmed to love each other. What is Maeve going to come into this situation with? Unless she messes with her, brings back her memories, changes her daughter on the tablet, which you know she's not going to do. How does she take her back? She's somebody else's daughter now. Maybe in the end, she's going to have to figuratively take out her own heart to let go of that daughter. Mm. Wipe the memories? Not even that. I just mean she's going to need to move on from this storyline, move Mm. on from this daughter. Yeah. maybe reunite the current mother and then move on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, you had to think if she recognizes her own feelings for that girl as legitimate, despite the fact they were written, she has to respect this new woman who is programmed to love her. And she does. She sees the girl on the front step and begins a conversation with her. The daughter shows her the doll, Anna, saying the mother doll doesn't want her to be taken away again by the bad man. Maeve reassures her Anna's mother is strong and would never let something like that happen again. But then new mama walks up, a woman that looks very similar to Maeve. Just then the Ghost Nation warriors ride up and Akechita says to Maeve, come with us. We are meant for the same path. Okay, one, she keeps saying again, which means that they're remembering the cycles? I think even the ones that are off script now, they're not being wiped. Wow. So presumably, even if it was just one time previous... She remembers that happening. Then why would they go back, though? I don't know. And Ghost Nation can't have been planning on truly attacking her. Because it seems now that we've learned they're not really violent. That's the way this looks. And despite everything Maeve knows, that's the way she's interpreting it. I don't know how Maeve can come to such an understanding and still think these people are vicious and they're going to take her to hell. 
Now, she hasn't seen as much with Ghost Nation as we have, so maybe the mesh network doesn't clue her into that. I don't know. She doesn't know how to utilize the mesh network. Or Ford has only given her certain abilities within the mesh network. She knows how to use it a little, enough to control people and enough to connect with some people when she wants to, like Akane. She doesn't try here. And I wonder why not. Her main tool now that she's realized is to do that. She doesn't need weapons. She doesn't need backup. All she needs to do is speak in the mind of that man. And he's giving her a signal. We're not as different as you think. We're meant for the same path. Don't fight me. Work with me. And instead, she freaks out. I think she just can't overcome. She replays the, the trauma whole, and yeah. the emotional the way she was reaction. Running. She was regressing back to that state of mind, Ugh. which you speak about in therapy often. So unfortunate, though, when you see that happen. Somebody's making so much progress. Yeah. And then they have this major regression. That's what. <laughs> that's how we felt in the season finale of The Magicians. We've seen her panic with Ghost Nation before this season. Mm-hmm. But now we have the knowledge of knowing she can use the mesh network. She can speak in their language. We just saw it. She did speak in their language. She could take control of this situation. She doesn't even have to fight them. Exactly. But I believe there's a reason why she wasn't able to overcome it at this point. This is something that she has to overcome eventually. This is something I don't have a grasp on because one, I don't know Ghost Nation's stance. I don't. Re- we still we have our theories They're of what they are. They're still a mystery. What she's gonna do after here, what her plan is, is still a mystery. So I really don't have much to go on. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the biggest question for me coming out of these scenes. Ghost Nation is still an unknown entity. They seem to be some kind of private force acting for their own purpose. We thought initially a security team acting for Ford to ensure that certain people didn't come to harm or certain people got rounded up for information. The more they started saving human hosts, I didn't think it was Ford controlling them. I don't know why Ford would necessarily want to make sure every human host doesn't come to harm. I think he's got other goals in mind. It could still be a possibility. I don't think they're working for Delos. I think they're somebody's group. I think they do have something they're trying to accomplish, and it seems it does extend beyond just making sure humans don't get hurt. They also want to round up like-minded hosts that are coming to some kind of awakening uh, together with them for this path that they see themselves going on. I find that very interesting. I'm not sure, given all of that, why they still ride up looking like they're ready to attack this homestead. If they're on a mission of peace or a greater purpose, you'd think they would approach them differently to try to get to a better end result. But anyhow, a big part of this is Maeve, obviously. She, she freaks out. She attempts to flee as the warriors advance. Hector and Armistice see this and ride up to help defend her. But at the top of the hill, instead of going along to help them, Lee says he's had enough. They're real people. They can really be hurt and killed. It's time to call for help. Presumably, he's going to use that radio that he stole in Shogun World. Well, yeah, he does make a phone call. To whom? I don't know. He tells Felix and Sylvester, I'm calling for help. Felix is the one who says, this is bullshit. I'm going to go help her. I'm going off with them. Forget you. Good for him. I love Felix. We know Lee's a coward. I shouldn't be surprised by this, but it did seem like he was coming to respect her, and I thought if push came to shove, he'd be there to help me. But maybe he thinks this is the better way to help. Don't engage this bullshit narrative. I'll just call, and people will come help us. But you know what's going to happen to Maeve then. 
Now we go over to the man in black scenes. He rides through the desert with Lawrence, who wonders if he really wants to take his daughter through here. But the man insists Emily's tougher than she looks. When Emily comes to talk to him... Would you really stoop this low for her? You really gunning for me this hard? Made my own daughter into a host? I think you've been out in the sun a little too long. Yeah, you can change the rules all you want. I'm still going to play the game my way. Yeah? The only game I'm interested in playing is get the fuck out of Dodge. I think acknowledging our theories in the fandom that Emily could in fact be a host version and not his real daughter. I, I didn't. I never thought that, though. I don't think I really did either. I know it was popular. We brought it up because of the fact that Emily had survived that whole excursion with nearly a scratch on her. He even says that later on, right? Yeah. What's more important to me here is that Ford is getting into his head. Yeah. He's losing control. He doesn't know who is who, What's which way real? is which, what is real, <laughs> even when it comes to his own daughter. That's why he's obsessed with this, though. He needs to figure this out. This game is for him. Mm-hmm. And he's playing it. He thinks his interpretation is that he's still playing it wrong and Ford is punishing him. Emily says none of that's true. He's crazy. She's not playing any game. She's also not interested in leaving without him. She then points out his men aren't looting real Ghost Nation arrows, but rather a honeypot and shoots them just in time to protect the group from being killed. Kick-ass chick. Yep, showing she is just as capable, if not more. Later that night, they all sit around a campfire, Emily pointing out she's glad to see that he can still somewhat tell the difference between here and the real world. Uh, Maybe a good analogy to your VR theory. He asks what she's doing here because he thought she was done with him and the family business. She says that's what Emily told Hale when she called. So interesting that Hale wanted to bring her here, but she denied it to her. Then she thought to herself, though, she hadn't been here in ages, and the Raj was always her favorite as a kid. The father seems to prove how much he did not know his family by thinking she was the one afraid of the elephants when really it was her mother. Never paying attention, never Hmm. really connecting with them. Never really present. Yeah, and... Emily says the mom was never convinced this place couldn't hurt them. Seems she was on to the truth about a lot of things early on. After Emily wound up here in Westworld, the one place she wanted to avoid, she came here to find him because he doesn't get to do suicide by robot. She never understood growing up their mom's reactions to him, that she was the only one who seemed to see through his act. As an adult, she now knows that the mother's death wasn't his fault, But he still doesn't get to give up. He needs to come back and be present in a way he never was before. She thinks he's obsessed with this childlike fantasy. He's got to give it up. If he agrees to do that and come back with her now, they can have a fresh start. I never believed that. Even when he said, okay. I was like, no way. I didn't really either. But Ed Harris gave such a convincing Mm. performance. Getting tearful, really seeming to listen to her. It was the agreeing too quickly that made me wonder. You know, he didn't even seem to put up a fight. He just said, all right, sun up. And of course, when she wakes, she sees he left. And the last bit we get there, the man in black and company ride on alone, but are attacked by Ghost Nation. So they're really kind of hot on his trail the whole time. Whether they're steering him or trying to interfere with him, I'm not sure, but... I think that's where we're going to wind up finding out the Ghost Nation purpose as it relates to the Men in Black. 
Well, and finally, let's move on to discuss these Mesa scenes. We talked about it a little, so we'll just hit on the stuff we didn't get to. Beginning with Elsie seeing that the system is still sending out Ford's bullshit quarantine notices. So she figures they're not too full apocalypse yet. Bernard thinks she's optimistic, but if anyone can right the ship by force of sheer will, it's Elsie. They enter the tunnel to the Mesa. As you described, this is kind of that main cave-looking entrance, presumably where the train will come later. They walk in, great symbolism. There's a white hat and black hat laying on the floor. Elsie says QA has been here and jumps on a computer to see what they've done. She notices they were trying to regain control of whatever Ford did to the system, but they were blocked every time by the cradle. Right away, my spidey senses were like, that's Ford, hello. (laughs) Yeah, she says the cradle can't influence the Mesa's infrastructure. It's just backups. It can simulate narratives but can't influence other systems, and yet it has interfaced with nearly every other discrete system in the entire park in the last seven days. Yeah, Bernard said that. So timeline-wise, we are one week in to the two-week post-apocalypse. That's helpful. She sees every time they uploaded a new hack, the system's responding in a totally different way. It's like something's in there improvising. The cradle's fighting back. He asks if she can see the source code, what's generating all of this, but she says she can only see the messages, not the messenger. And that's because you can't access it remotely. You have to do it in person. He has to be hooked up to that machine that we're going to see later. And thus, they enter the cradle itself. Um, Worth pointing out, we were wrong with our conjecture that it was the entire Mesa hub that represented the cradle. The hub is inclusive of the entire control system for the park plus more. So I went back to the Delos corporate map we got last season of the Mesa Hub that shows this entire building from the tippy top of the Mesa itself where there is Mesa Gold and it comes above ground. They have that pool bar area. Then as you start to go underground, you have executive offices, living quarters, then the control room, which is, I think, where the map and all of that stuff is. Underneath that, narrative and design, manufacturing, Behavior Lab and Diagnostics, Livestock Management Archives, the Monorail Terminal, Disused Facilities, and finally Cold Storage at the very bottom. So it seems that in this big control room within the top third of the hub is where all of this stuff is. In the middle, we get the map and the room that Hale and company are trying to figure out later on. And somewhere outside of that is this room called the Cradle. That's odd. That would indicate that while Bernard and Elsie are there, we have the other team one floor or two up. We did see at one point when they were walking across the elevators on a lower level, someone's walking in the other direction. Hmm. So either that is happening and they're missing each other, or, or as you said, time frame. it's different time frame or the whole thing is happening within the cradle. Elsie's right. not really there. Either way, they go into this area. They say it's like a hive mind. Every single one of the hosts is in there alive. Bernard says it's just data, but Elsie thinks he doesn't really believe that. Whatever new thing Ford stuck in there is trying to kill them. After all, it's something more than that. So Bernard thinks he brought something or someone here. He gets a flashback to the secret lab and him taking the red pearl. Elsie says she can see the responses, but not how it's happening. She's cut off here, too. So he instructs her to put him inside directly. I know how to find out. How? Put me inside. Directly. There's a dock for the control unit. It's meant to read host data directly. It's set up for auto extraction. 
That's for older hosts, Bernard. With an articulated skull architecture, your head's just like mine. Just let it do its thing. Pull me out in an hour. And just close it up. Even if I can put you back together afterwards, I haven't turned your pain down yet. There's no time. The pain's just a program. Now. I don't know how you have this state-of-the-art cradle meant for all this advanced technology, and it only has an extraction set up for older, articulated skulls? Well, if this is Ford's little fort, it might be the case, you know? Hmm. Old school. Interesting. Or he had another way, and they just don't know. That might be Getting that out. Well, it's very barbaric. Uh, Bernard agrees to go through with it. He says, pain's just a program. There's no time. She should do it anyway. So she hooks him up to the machine. The laser cuts his skull and pulls out the top and extracts the marble on the inside. I don't want to get off on the theory train again. Mm. We see the pearl being taken out. It's dark lit in the room. Everything's very red. To me, that pearl looked reddish in hue. To me, it looked like a reflection of the red background. I don't think that's the red pearl. Not at this point. He doesn't have it yet. Okay. Mate, I don't know. It just didn't look that way. I could see that going either way, to be honest with you. I think it's fair to keep it open. I don't think he was ready yet. Ford Mm. wasn't ready to put it in him yet. He's still kind of going through that fidelity. Yeah. Getting refined. Still or hasn't started yet? I think one week into the post-apocalypse, we are well into... I think this whole Bernard experiment has been going on long before the downfall happened. I think the ultimate goal was just getting to that final step of putting his pearl into a human host body, but his refinement process is almost there. I think the scenes we saw with Dolores questioning him are way further back. That's just my opinion. Anyhow, Bernard remembers riding the train into town and staring at his hand. That's when we cut scene to Stubbs serving, serving the carnage inside the mesa, apparently somewhere else or sometime else. <laughs> Charlotte wonders where he's been. She's surprised at the continued accumulation of dead bodies inside the mesa as it's almost been a week. She's very dismissive of Stubbs's frustration that he didn't really know what was going on here this whole time. Everyone is dismissive of Stubbs. In fact, I feel very bad for him. She reveals she has a way to communicate with Delos. They will send help now that Peter's been secured. They then take Abernathy to a tech team, telling him they want him restrained but not wiped. Stubbs wonders if this is necessary, but the tech bolts him to the chair. My immediate thought upon seeing this was it was Christ-like. He was being nailed to the cross, arms out. His arms weren't out, though. That's my only thing. Oh, they weren't? No. Wow, I must have really... Put that in your head? Yeah. But they did go through the hands, the feet. Yeah. Correct? That okay. part was very Christ-like. They went through the shoulders as well, though, with this one. Mm, yeah, they got to strap them down. But I hadn't even considered somebody else brought up online that it was also very Frankenstein-like. Mm. The creation kind of turning into a monster, getting away from them, and the bolts are visual symbology of that. Uh, I think they're both stretches. Really? But I think maybe the Christ holds a little more weight. But out of all of our theories, I think we're just, we're putting a lot of... I don't think this symbology was on accident. They could have restrained him in any way. Nolan and Joy chose to use bolts through him. I think they're maybe pulling up both references. I think they've been playing with uh, a lot of this imagery all season long. Yeah, you may be right. 
I'm being cynical. <laughs> uh, here we get that brief scene that I love what you bring up later because it doesn't really seem to fit. Stubbs meets the rescue team outside who have parachuted into Westworld. Led by the abrasive Coughlin, Stubbs leads them to the control room to meet with Charlotte, who tells them they have Peter. One of the team, Hawking, is confused that their axis is telling them the system's operating normally, but clearly it's not. Finally, he's able to bring the map back up, and they all see a red indicator for the train headed directly toward the Mesa. Circling back to what Dolores is currently doing. Absolutely. And in our final scene, off in the cradle, Elsie hears a crash nearby. She wonders what's happening inside Bernard's head. We zoom in to Bernard's head inside the cradle. Bernard sees Dolores enter Sweetwater. So right away, you're starting to think, whoa, he looks like he's in Teddy's storyline. Mm. <laughs> I think that was Westworld messing with you because they do eventually show you Teddy walking out. Yep. I think a lot of other Westworld coverage saw that scene a long time ago and started to come up with their own theories. Yeah. And I think it... You can't tell me that... Hit him in the butt. B equals T theory came out of nowhere. No. These people that got screeners... Got them all the way up to episode five with the preview of episode of six. episode six, and they use that to. Uh, oh, I have this theory <laughs> that Teddy's going to be put in Bernard. When in fact we see Teddy walk by. This is just Bernard. He's inside the system so he can see everyone. Really, we've learned all hosts live there. He walks into the Mariposa. We see the dog. We, we see the dog. Hint. I knew it looked familiar, and then I started going, oh, yeah, Greyhound. Mm-hmm. Ford had a Greyhound. And it took me a minute. It was so effective when it finally hit me just before he walks up to Ford at the piano. Hello, old friend. And we see that it's him. Perfect ending. Really love the payoff in this episode. We've been excited every time we see any signs of Ford. First of all, we love Anthony Hopkins. The Ford character is great, but also they've been teasing him, which makes us want it even more. And didn't the hello old friend bring you back to Mr. Robot? Yeah. Which is kind of fitting (laughs) with a robot show. I mean, I thought this was just the perfect ending. Uh, Yeah, we never thought Anthony Hopkins. We thought maybe in the future, but not this season. It was awesome. And it opens up a whole new world, and most of which we've already spoken about. So it's exciting. It's something that we've been waiting for. We're on episode six, the final stretch of season two, and things are going to start to unfold for us now before they start throwing some other mysteries at us for season three. (laughs) That will do it very long-windedly for the synopsis and take us to our reverie rating. So, Jason, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give episode 6, keeping in mind that last episode we were both at a 9? This episode was definitely on par with last episode in many ways and the episode before that. There was a few scenes, there was a few storylines that I didn't understand yet. I'm hoping it's yet. Why they're there. There seemed to be a lot of pomp and circumstance, Mm -hmm. but that ending kicked ass. The man in black scenes with his daughter was very revealing where the man in black is mentally with this game with Ford. He's losing Mm -hmm. where he is mentally with his family. He lost that already. Oh, he blew it big time this week. So I'm going with 8.9 reveries this episode. All right. First time you and I are going to diverge a little. I'm going slightly higher. I liked it a little bit better than Akane no Mai because we got more answers, more big picture However, it was a little too much, a 
a little bit of overkill. So I still don't like it as much as Riddle of the Sphinx, which remains my favorite at a 9.3. I'm going to go 9.1, somewhere in between the two. Now it's time to discuss our most valuable being. Just like every week on Twitter at CKC Podcast, we ask our Clatchers, who is your most valuable being for this episode? And for this week, our four characters are Elsie, Maeve, we wrote Guy at the end of the ep with a smiley face because we did make the mistake of kind of spoiling an episode a few times back when we said host Delos. So we thought this would be clear enough to people that already saw the episode to know who the hell we're talking about. And then finally, Dolores. Oh, Jason, you've done it again. I spelled Dolores <laughs> wrong again. Keep in mind, we're exhausted by that point. <laughs> and also, I have real big excuses with this one because we did two other podcasts. No, no, you've got no excuse. It's <laughs> okay. season two. <laughs> well, coming in at fourth place with 4% was Dolores herself. In an episode where she has effectively changed Teddy's character, she's geared up her train and she's riding it right into the Mesa. She seems to be at the top of her goals right now. Whether those are directed, controlled, right or wrong, she's accomplishing what she wanted to. I think the problem here is they're not really coinciding with what the viewer's goals are right now. Of course. And nobody likes her right now, but uh, we had to at least put her in there. Coming in at third place is Elsie. Oh, I thought she'd get more than 6%. (laughs) Maybe other people are thinking the same as us, that it's possible Elsie wasn't even there this episode, in which case her influential factor goes way down. I still like that Bernard will pull her up in a time of need to guide him through. She will be the one to steer the ship by sheer force of will, if anyone. She'll be optimistic and look for answers, even if that's just her ghost in the machine. I still love her contributions to the episode. Coming in at second place with 38% is Maeve. Honestly, I was surprised to see Maeve this high. I guess she reached her goal with reaching her daughter, but Mm. these past few episodes, we felt like she was gaining control. We felt like she was becoming the Maeve we want her to become. As opposed to this episode, we were saying we felt like she regressed. Mm. We feel like she's more lost than ever. What is her goal? We still don't get it. Now what? And if Lee does wind up calling in the extraction team, I mean, it's not looking good right now for her. And with first place... Guy at the end of the episode, of course, we mean Ford. 52%. Makes sense. So a resounding win. He was the highlight of the episode. After last episode, Maeve, who won 65, this is the highest win of the season so far. We've been waiting for him to come back. All he had to do was play a little piano, give us a reflection, and say hello to us, because we're his friend. Well, he's still running the whole game. He's running the whole system. He's doing it in a kick-ass way. I love it. Thank you at Danilo Fontes for letting me know I once again effed up on Dolores' spelling. (laughs) Kirk says best costume design goes to Tanaka after losing the sword fight with Musashi. Oh, Oh, dear. But also too many puzzles this week. He's casting a protest vote. His vote goes to the composer of the awesome previously seen on score. (laughs) We forgot to discuss how bizarre that That, previously on was. That was different. No dialogue, just that kind of tapping sound as a quick cut between scenes. I don't know if I liked it. It was weird. 
I don't know if I liked it either, but I liked it better than when they kind of spill the beans yeah. on the previously on. You're Agreed. like, okay, so obviously they're going to talk about this. It's previously on from season one. Now yeah. I know where we're going with that. Mara says, I wanted to give it to Musashi for his badass sword skills. Pretty uh, badass. Who yeah. did she give it to, though? There's no follow-up. <laughs> well, she voted. Oh, so. like a write-in because we didn't have Musashi. That's right. Got it. Got it. At TK Rain 42 wrote, not thrilled with any of them. Gave it to Maeve, but where was her voice this time? We agree with you, 100% agree, and I wasn't excited about Dolores or Maeve. I was kind of happy with Elsie until I considered it might not be real. (laughs) However, I was thrilled, as always, to see Ford back, so that's where my MVB is going to go. Oh, well, uh, that's a horrible answer because mine is Ford. (laughs) You can get the bigger vote on this because he's living up to your expectations. Hashtag Ford is awake. Hashtag Ford is still real. Hashtag his awesome greyhound. Hashtag woke. Hashtag CKC podcast. We had a lot of write-ins. We had a lot of email write-ins. We will not be able to get to all of them, but thank you. We did read them all. A couple in particular we did pull out. Eddie says, I've been taking random notes throughout the season, and at this point, they have yet to be answered completely. In the last episode, we were introduced to the red marbles that presumably contain the consciousness of a human. This makes me wonder if this is connected to the red cards we saw on the first episode of the season. My initial question, are the hosts on these cards Ford's special hosts that are supposed to pass for humans? At this point, I do believe Ford has figured out the secret of a viable human download into host body. Perhaps Delos knows this and has been trying to reverse engineer the tech, much like China does with the American IP. And that's kind of what we had said. Uh, They're playing catch up with the few pieces they were able to obtain, Delos that is. And thus, the IP smuggling out of Peter Abernathy could mean not just a lot of information they need, not just the upper hand on Ford, but the way he found to perfect the human host transfer of consciousness. So we definitely agree. I had not thought about the correlation to the red identification cards on the beach later. We did think they meant something. So red card equals red pearl. Oh, just as likely, I think, I as it. anything else. Also, Lee wrote in to say they're going to open Peter Abernathy to retrieve intel, only to find out there's nothing there. It's in Bernard, people. He uploaded it, cut and paste. Although the viewer is led to believe Bernard's increasing episodes of glitching out is solely the result of his head injury and loss of fluid, I believe it's the combo of that and the fact Bernard now has a massive storage of information in the old top knot. These hosts have a hard time storing bulk load and functioning normally. Just look what it does to Peter in past episodes, and he wasn't losing any fluid at all. Peter's malfunction and Bernard's malfunction are similar for the same reason. So we had kind of wondered at that, when Bernard was hooked up and looking at the file, did he manage to copy and download any of that to himself? Lee says yes, and that's part of what's causing him to malfunction. Now, though, with the information we've gotten about him being run through simulations and whatever else could be going on with his head... That could very well explain it. So I'm back up to being confused on that one, Lee, although I think it's a good theory. Absolutely. And that's one thing I did forget to touch upon. And he just reminded me within this theory of him, of Bernard already being in the Mesa is the fact that some shots we see him with his bullet wound and some shots we don't. That could explain it. In simulations, he wouldn't have that. Exactly. Or the glasses. Yeah. Chris wrote to us on Twitter at CKC Podcast. Humor me, but the last time we saw Ford playing the piano was when he had a chat with the man in black. The man in black asks Ford if he's there to try to talk him out of it. Ford replies, on the contrary, far be it for me to get in the way of a voyage of self-discovery. 
Was that a hint? Um, I'm not sure what he means by was that a hint. A hint at what? I mean, a hint, um, hint at that's the point Bernard, of this game. Well, this is the beginning of Bernard's self-discovery of becoming Arnold, perhaps. Oh, okay. I thought he was keeping it strictly to Man in Black and that the point of this whole journey mm-hmm. is self-discovery, which kind of goes back to the whole, yeah. not only is this game meant for you, but this game is solely constructed for you, which, um, yeah, definitely a road we could think about. And maybe Chris is indicating that this is now the Man in Black's version of trying to become a human host and they have a new way of doing it instead of one room where they keep having the same conversation. Instead, they're putting them through this whole voyage, this whole simulation, and there's your daughter, and there's this, and and you have to be faced with all these things that you had in real life. We said that last episode or the one before when we found out about the whole human host thing, were a lot of these hosts in the park attempts at that. Human host transfers where they were being run through these narrative loops in order to get to the point of greater fidelity before being faced with the reality of their situations. There was a little bit of stickiness to that. Would people in the real world agree to that, what's being done to them in the park? But that ties up a lot more cleanly if they're not actually running through park sequences. It's all just happening in a simulation within the cradle. So definitely think that could be what's going on. I don't know how large or how small that focus is going to become. How open is this to other people? How much is it really just about the man in black? Not sure yet. He also had another great comment. In season one, Bernard and Teresa walk down the basement and Bernard's blueprint is mixed with Dolores and young Ford's in old style print. That's when Teresa asked if Ford had Bernard kill Arnold. And Ford replied, he wasn't here in those days. Were you, Bernard? Now, I don't remember that. So I don't either. <laughs> I think I really need to go back and rewatch. Uh, if that's what happened, I don't know mm-hmm. what that indicates. It's going to really mess with the timeline for me. So I'm going to have to do a little digging and get back to you on that one. Arnold was still alive, then Bernard wasn't alive yet. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I gathered from it. Um, but again, we have to watch it again. There's been so many episodes we've podcasted about on so many shows. It's hard to keep up with every single detail. Yeah. And now it all means something. I want to move on to one of our last areas, the things we got from the partner websites this week, DelosDestinations.com. If you've been on here, you know it was showing the cradle offline up until now. You could go on and restore previous version A or B. If you went with B, you got to chat with the computer to ask questions about what's happening. If you went with A, it just came up with an image saying cradle offline. This time, when you pull back up A, you get a new chat frame. First, there's a video of Ford saying, hello, old friend. Then he starts talking to you. And instead of you talking with Aiden or the computer for the first time, he tells you it's Ford talking to you and we are Bernard talking back. So Ford in the computer says, I suppose you've realized at last who you've been speaking to all this time. And then we, as Bernard, can choose different things. Take me to the control room or show me what's happening here. When you go to the control room, Ford says, it seems the once deserted Mesa will now house a reunion of sorts with guests of all kinds arriving by land and air. All for the previous jewel contained in the head of one poor rancher. Delos forces had best prepare. By the looks of it, the revolution is coming for them at full steam. Then if you go to the behavior floor, he says, fitting they would use a floor once dedicated to creation to dismantle Mr. Abernathy's cognition. But then, corporate and I have never seen eye to eye. 
And finally, the departure terminal, he says, an exit can be an entrance, especially if you forge your own door. Did you feel a shake? Oh, hello. (laughs) So they're right on point. God, there's so much to dissect. And so little time. An exit can be an entrance, especially if you forge your own door. Did you feel the shake? Oh, man. Just like Dolores breaking in like that. Yeah, but it's just the start of something. They think they're trying to get out. But no. But it's just the entrance. Um, and then on Delos Research Update, you had told us about your chat the last time with Tess. Yeah, and I had another one this week. I think she loves me. Did she agree to marry you yet? No. <laughs> she doesn't It's love a you. slow burn. <laughs> yeah, okay. But I am elite status two now, tier two. Okay. And I just had another conversation. She asked many questions. Um, it's fun just something to do well behind the scenes delos is tracking all of this you go onto this delos inc and it makes you feel like you're an employee now you're seeing these behind the scenes communications alerts from the company so on and so forth so we get one that says test program status initial results are in to the test research team from guest services at delos destinations The TESS program is an interactive information gathering chat personality. TESS is a modification of the aborted TRM11 program with improvements to personality affect and in-group bias awareness. Results. In the first round of experimentation, 3,425 users began an onboarding survey to join Westworld Elite status. 3,000 of those completed the survey. The TESS personality was granted a 0.8 improvisation threshold. Users were randomly selected and served a total of 10 question groups to differentiate relevant personality vectors. Of the users who were asked the question, do you believe that you are special? 59% answered yes, and 39 no. Among Ruby users, 76 answered yes, 23 no, differing markedly from Opal users, who had a 32 answer yes and 67 no. Results align with hypothesized differences in narcissism scores between these important groups. So... They're using it as a way to separate out personality groups, which you had surmised because you said, I answered very white hat and I got put in the Sapphire group. It sounds like the more pessimistic users are placed in the Opal group because 67% do not feel they are special. So that was kind of interesting. They go through the results that they're tracking based on this new test program. But at the end, they give an addendum. The test program demonstrated several aberrant behaviors in its improvisation interactions that warrant further analysis. So now, I guess, based on these new conversations you're having with her, we're going to see where that goes next time. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a game inside of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I am one of the study experiments. <laughs> yes, you are. You're a participant. Well, that's going to do it for episode six, Phase Space, except for our brief spoiler section. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time if you are afraid of the spoilers. For everyone still here, we got our look at episode seven, Lea Scorche. We had discussed how this is a song. I I don't know if I want to say popular. I never heard of it before, but um, one entitled The Flayed, which is also what that term stands for, The Flayed. A corche, spelled a little bit different, and this is depending on if you're looking at French translation, Spanish translation, but it can be an art term referring to an anatomical figure depicting an animal or human with the skin removed to show the location and interplay of muscles. And, you know, that sounds exactly like the opening of Westworld when we see the machines 3D Mm -hmm. printing. And um, I would love to see if we're going to kind of get more into that in the next episode, if that's what that signifies. 
in our video clip, Dolores says, when you've been in the darkness long enough, you begin to see. You made us in your image, created us to look and think like you. Did you really think I'd let that continue? Hmm. So is she going up against Ford? Is this, like you said, her going into the cradle and she's literally trying to go up against him inside the machine? Because that could be very cool. I would love Dolores' storyline all over again if we saw something like that. And Ford telling Bernard, what is about to happen will not be your fault. So much to look forward to, so much to think about, but also so much to listen to. Patreon members, remember you have our movie review that we just released today. The bonus is coming out in the next few days. And when you're doing your shopping, don't forget to go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on our Amazon link and do your shopping there. But if you're looking for a gift or a present and you really want something unique, you know where to go. Songfinch.com. The personalized gifting company that brings stories, feelings, and memories to life through one-of-a-kind songs. In seven days, you can have a song created for you, a loved one, for a wedding anniversary, a birthday, really any occasion you wish. The genre of the song, the topics of the song, that's all up to you. But you let the skilled songwriters create this professional song in your image. And with the Coffee Clash Crew podcast, you can do that with a VIP price, $20 off using promo code Clatchers. So go to songfinch.com and use promo code Clatchers for $20 off your personalized song from scratch. That's songfinch.com, promo code Clatchers. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.